Israel continues in today's headlines. What should Christians know about these issues? Find out on today's episode of A View from the Wall. Join I Am A Watchman Ministries Managing Editor Joe Kerr with co-host Dylan Burroughs, bringing you a fascinating discussion regarding the importance of Bible prophecy and Christian living today as it relates to our responsibility as believers to be watchmen. This is A View From The Wall. Welcome to A View From The Wall. I'm Dylan Burroughs here today with co-host Joseph Kerr, and we have an exciting program here for you today. With the war that's been raging in the Middle East, many people have questions about how this conflict may connect with our faith. To answer today, we're joined by Greg Roman from the Middle East Forum, one of the directors there, and he and 2014 was named one of the 10 most inspiring global Jewish leaders by the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. He's recently been in Israel and experienced this firsthand, and we wanted to talk with him as much as we can today, so let's dive right in. Greg Roman, welcome to A View from the Wall. Thank you for having me. Well, we're honored to have you with us. And like I said, you've been there just recently to where Israel has been experiencing conflict with Hamas. Tell us a little bit about the work that you do with Middle East Forum and what you were doing in Israel during this time. Sure. So um, just personally, I served in the Israeli Defense Forces, one of which I served in an active duty, one of which I was a reservist, and the last two I participated as an armchair analyst. Uh, getting out of my chair and going over to the region to interview people and to understand the policy implications for the American side, because there's always an American national security interest in this. But um, in this latest round, the heaviest, uh, even though it was shorter than the last round in 2014, but the heaviest in terms of the concentration, the multiple volleys, and the sheer lethality of the rocket fire coming from Hamas in the Gaza Strip, and the actual tie-in, Hamas's strategic goals in launching these violent terrorist attacks from the air on civilian territory uh, in Israel. As Hamas enlarged its objectives in launching these rockets, they weren't just saying uh, stop uh, restrictions on Gaza. They weren't just saying uh, please uh, allow for the entrance of more equipment, uh, which would be a contravention of of the blockade Israel has had on Gaza since 2007, when Hamas violently took over power from the elected Palestinian Authority there. But in this case, it launched rockets in the middle of May because of an action that Israel had taken in Jerusalem. It was the first time that an action in the West Bank or East Jerusalem led to a violent uprising in Gaza. And, And the significance of that is that Hamas is now trying to make a stake as the sole leader of Palestinian terrorism against Israel, rather than splitting the job with Fatah, their secular rival, uh, and and Mahmoud Abbas, the president of the Palestinian Authority, he's the head of that political party. Usually the PA uh, tries to harass Israel through mostly nonviolent means, like suing it in the International Criminal Court, trying to bring sanctions against it in the United Nations, uh, having media and incitement uh, driven propaganda throughout different Western media outlets. Hamas is the violent one, but in this case, Hamas extended its violence on a four-front war. It was active in the West Bank. It was active in East Jerusalem. It was active within mixed Jewish-Arab cities in Israel proper. 
and of course the rocket fire from Gaza. So that extension of its um, mandate of violence, uh, or, or what it sees as its mandate to commit violent terrorist attacks against Israeli civilians and Israeli targets, was really a significant outgrowth of what I think is a failed security policy on the Israeli side for the past seven years, and, and that paid the price by maybe having tactical victories. But in the case of this war, that's one of the reasons why Prime Minister Netanyahu is in trouble right now, uh, a strategic loss. That's an interesting point that you raise about Netanyahu. It's a precarious ceasefire, and many Israelis disagreed with the ceasefire. They wanted to cripple Hamas capabilities once and for all. Did they accomplish that? Did the IDF accomplish that? Or did Netanyahu agree for some other reason? Why did he cave to the ceasefire? So let's, let's look at this in terms of like three aspects, okay? The IDF's goal, as defined in terms of its airstrikes against Hamas, were they effective? Yes, every place that the Israeli Defense Forces uh, sought to strike, it was able to deliver crippling blows against the Hamas infrastructure and the Hamas personnel that it went after. The head of Hamas's uh, rocket and uh, missile production division, who's actually, he got his PhD from an American institution. Wow. Tells you about how well we're vetting um, our uh, you know, academic entrance to PhD programs. Uh, he was taken out. His son, who was the deputy division head of, of, of the uh, rocket division, was taken out. The head of their central brigade, which is essentially like, look at it as the Hamas equivalent of a four-star general, he was taken out. Um, so some, some significant leadership losses resulted as, as a result of the IDF uh, airstrike. But I don't think that the goals as were defined by the security cabinet, where you have the army, which carries out the political decisions, but you have above that the civilian leadership that defines the goals of the operation. So on, on CDS Space the Nation, Netanyahu appeared four days before the ceasefire, and he said, our goal is not just deterrence vis-a-vis Hamas. Our goal is degradation of Hamas's capabilities. And, and degradation, that, that's a relative term, right? Like, are you going from 10,000 rockets to 5,000? Are you going from, uh, you know, 8,000 commandos to 7,500? I, I think that the word he should have used, and, and this is where I think that, you know, Israel's civilian leadership made a mistake, was seeking the complete disarmament of Hamas from its rocket launching capabilities and not stopping operation against Hamas. Remember, Hamas fired first. People forget that, right? Hamas fired on Jerusalem. I mean, they took the holiest of holies between Islam, Christianity, and Judaism, used it as a flashpoint, and then waged a religious war on Israel for 12 days. There's there's nothing left to describe it that way. Israel, I think, going beyond the conversation about faith, had the justification under international humanitarian law and the rules of war to go as far as to make sure that Hamas wouldn't be able to launch rockets anymore. But I really think that because Netanyahu was dealing with an unexpected upsurge in violence within the state of Israel with Arab-Israeli Muslims rioting pogroms and synagogues being burned to the ground uh, Bibles being torched in, in city squares, Molotov cocktails being washed onto the houses of Jewish families. 
and even in some cases, people being pulled out of their cars and attended lynchings in the street, I think because Netanyahu was surprised by the reaction on the health front because he wasn't ready for an operation like this. If, if Israel was to participate in an effort to, to disarm Hamas, it would probably be on its terms rather than on Hamas's terms. And lastly, with what was increasingly uh, heavy, heavy, heavy pressure from the government of uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris here in the United States, um, I think that he capitulated. And I think that that was a mistake. And 73% of Israelis, according to a poll that was taken, agree with that position that he should not have stopped until Hamas was disarmed or surrendered. Well, this is fascinating information. We have so much more. We'll be right back here in a moment on A View from the Wall. From I Am A Watchman Ministries, here's today's I Am A Watchman Minute. About 2,000 years ago, Jesus shared a message to seven churches. When John wrote the book of Revelation, there were about 100 churches in Greater Asia. Why these seven churches? These churches were not the largest or most notable. Two of the seven had grave issues. Many believe Jesus chose to speak to these churches because their location and ministry are representative of both future periods of church history and the major issues individuals and churches struggle with today. If you would like to learn more about the Lord's timeless message to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, then visit imawatchman.com and type churches in the search bar at the top right of the homepage. That's churches in the search bar to access the multi-part study. Be bold. Be faithful. Be a watchman. Iamawatchman.com Welcome back to A View from the Wall. Today we have as our guest the leader from the Middle East Forum, Greg Roman. And we've been talking about issues in Israel. And as we continue, we want to talk about this idea of Palestinian rejectionism. Greg has just written about this in May, about the persistent problem that undergirds all the conflict in Israel, this Palestinian rejectionism. What is it, Greg, and how do we combat that philosophy here in our own country and worldwide? Sure. So when you think about the identity of nationalism for most countries, if you're German or British or Chinese or American or Russian, you say, I'm an American, and what it means to be an American is to love living in America, or love living in Germany, or love being in Russia, whatever you want to talk about. Right. Most people enjoy the state that they live in, and they're proud of the place where they come from. No nationality is based on rejecting someone else's identity, except for Palestinian nationalism. There's an expectation within Palestinian society and Palestinian politics that you must reject the right of someone else to live in the land that you claim to be yours. But that faces in complete 180-degree backward logic versus the way in which Palestinians were initially supposed to be identified according to uh, the Balfour Declaration in 1917, the San Remo Conference in 1923, most importantly, the UN vote in 1947 that partitioned the land between Arabs and Jews, which we now have as the modern-day state of Israel, and what could have been the state of Palestine, but that was rejected by all of the Arabs uh, who were in part of that vote and then invaded Israel in 1948. Uh, the story is very short after that. Israel won its war of independence, won some 
nine wars after, and is a fact and it's here to stay. While Israel prospers, the Palestinians suffer, not because of Israel, but because of their own rejectionist. And this is what we get to the rejectionist idea, rejectionist tendencies. Every time they're given a peace offer, they reject it. Every time they are given favorable terms for uh, 100% of the land that they've requested, they reject it. Every time they've been given the opportunity to have East Jerusalem as their capital, a demand of Palestinian leadership, they reject it. As Golda Meir said, the former prime minister of Israel, the Palestinians never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. And Palestinian rejection is based on three key concepts. The first is Islamic doctrine, what's called Waqf and Sikh. The idea that they think that the religion of Islam gives them a right to the land, and the doctrine which imposes upon the way that Palestinians teach uh, Islam in some certain contexts is that they have a duty to fulfill what they consider to be that Islamic adherence. If they were to go a little bit deeper into the Quran, though, they would actually see that the Quran is a proto-Zionist document, where there's some 40 to 50 mentions in the Quran of the Jews having a right to a land of their own. That's a whole other conversation, probably for another interview. The second thing that forms the basis for Palestinian rejectionism is the support of foreign, uh, far-left elements that, in one way or another, have this idea of replacement theology and replacement ideology, both on the ecumenical strain coming from their definition of uh, the religion, and also from their political beliefs that there should be no uh, Jewish homeland because it's based on an ethno-nationalist idea rather than being on an idea for the majority of the people who live there. And the third thing that forms the basis for Palestinian rejectionism beyond Islamic doctrine, beyond that of left-wing support for it, is this sense of, um, I, I don't want to go so far as to say it's the, the hatred of their own self, but it's the leadership of the Palestinian people being more interested in their own kleptocratic, corrupt, and uh, self-indignant ways rather than thinking of what's best for Palestinians. And those three things together add up to the formulation of two variants of Palestinians rejecting Israel's right to exist. The first, that of the Islamist element embodied by the Hamas terror organization and its allies, like the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, um, the uh, uh, Martyrs Brigades, the Al-Quds uh, Force, which is largely backed uh, by Iran. And then the other uh, side, which we spoke about in the first segment, which is the Fatah organization. This is the organization founded by Yasser Arafat in 1964, and the principal leadership recognized by Western governments and other um, international bodies across most of the world. These two together are often only interested in preserving their own status quo rather than looking out for what's best of um, the Palestinians. So those three elements together form Palestinian rejectionism. Greg, you wrote an article for Newsweek titled The End of the Illusion that Anti-Zionism is Not Connected to Jew Hatred, which was fantastic, by the way. Anti-Semitism is on the rise around the world. Talk about that long-standing hatred of Jews. So anti-Semitism is often defined as the world's oldest and most pernicious form of hatred. But the parts that we get from the line that we, I'd like you to focus on that article, is not that uh, people dislike Israel because it's the land of the Jews. 
people dislike Israel because it's the homeland of the Jews. And the difference between the very small difference in that statement is, is that wherever Jews will go, there will be those detractors that follow them. Not because the Jewish people have done anything wrong, but because it just keeps on in generation after generation. There seems to be the age-old provocateurs, anti-Semitic provocateurs, that find a way to chase the Jewish people, whether it's Hitler or whether it's today with the Ayatollah in Tehran. And the main thing that I would want people to find out in the article is that when you relate to Israelis and then you relate to Jews who live in the diaspora, the Jewish diaspora outside of Israel, the hatred which comes to them, it comes from the same source. And that's just rank rife historical anti-Semitism. It's not because of the state of Israel existing or because Jews who live outside the state support it. And that's well said. And anti-Semitism continues today. And we're going to talk more about this and other matters in a moment here on A View from the Wall. Stick with us. The rapture can happen at any time. You may be ready, but are your friends and family spiritually prepared for the coming of the Lord? What will happen to those left behind? We've created a new resource to help you help them. It's called the Rapture Kit. Included in the Rapture Kit is a Bible and vital information on what the rapture is and how to prepare for what's to come. The Rapture Kit also includes eight books on prophecy, apologetics, the Christian walk, and being a watchman for the Lord, plus a number of video and audio teachings all preloaded on an eight gigabyte flash drive. Become more strategic and active in your witnessing. Warn the lost about the coming rapture and help individuals in the post-rapture world be drawn to Christ, equipping them to become the next generation of ministry leaders. Learn more and order at rapturekit.org. Welcome back to A View from the Wall. We've been talking today with Greg Roman from the Middle East Forum and had a fascinating discussion talking about what's happening in Israel, his time there, about anti-Semitism and its rise in our world today. But we still have more to discuss here today. And one issue we want to discuss briefly is this idea of the Abraham Accords. When President Trump was in office, he helped make this happen where many nations in the Middle East that had never even normalized relations with Israel as a country were suddenly working with them. Uh, tell us a little bit about where things are with that, uh, given the issues that have happened recently? Sure. So we look at the White House law in last September, and we have the emblematic picture of the Minister of State for the United Arab Emirates, Minister of Foreign Affairs for Bahrain, and the Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, all standing across looking at the White House law with President Trump presiding over the signing of peace treaties between those three countries that will later extend to Sudan, which has just in the last two years overthrown its long-term dictator, Omar al-Bashir, and Morocco, a country where somewhere around 10% of Israel's Jewish population actually comes from. Most people don't know this, but there's 400,000 Jews of Moroccan origin that live in Israel proper. So you have, with those four countries, uh, what I would call sort of track two under-the-radar relationship which formulated over the course of some, in, in some cases, the state of Israel and Morocco have been friendly, uh, or frenemies, if you want to call it that, <laughs> going back to 1948. But, but what, what President Trump did, and this is what was unique about his 
uh, equation towards Middle East peacemaking is he broke the age-old adage that you have to have Israel make peace with the Palestinians first, and then Arab nations surrounding it only after that happens. I think that the combination of Arab governments realizing that President Obama had abandoned them in the wake of a growing potential threat of a nuclear Iran, and that Israel actually filled the gap and was willing to kinetically, um, through cyber means, uh, through economic means, oppose Iran as a much smaller country, but still holding Iranians accountable and keeping them honest. If not, I mean, we saw what happened to those who kind of went the other way. Um, they could rely on Israel as an ally. So these countries, these four Arab countries that are now in, in peace agreements with Israel, they survived the latest round of conflict with Gaza. In the past, Morocco had diplomatic relations with Israel. That shut down when the Second Intifada began 20 years ago. I think the worst thing you had was the Moroccan prime minister uh, wishing Hamas well. But the prime minister doesn't have the power there. The king does. And there's no statements against Israel coming from the king's office. I was in Dubai, actually, when um, it was in the middle of the conflict. And there was almost no negative press from the Emirati papers about what was going on in Israel between the Palestinians and Gaza. So the Arabs have been able to, um, I don't want to say enrich themselves, but they've been able to benefit from the Abraham Accords and the subsequent economic, military, diplomatic, and political tidings that came from that. And they've now moved past the point of question for these agreements. I think it's permanent here to stay. Greg, in the time since we recorded this and over the next week when it's released, a lot has happened with the elections, which could go to a fifth election. Who knows? In Israel, it's kind of you have to have a scorecard to see who's in charge over there. Tell us what's happened most recently, where you think it's headed. Will the Knesset approve the Midnight Coalition? What's going on? Sure. So when Prime Minister Netanyahu had his first government back in 2000, first government was premiership back in February of 2009, it had a very clear block of who his allies were. You had the um, ultra-Orthodox political parties in Israel. You had um, the junior uh, right-wing parties. You even had the Labor Party, which at that time was interested in ruling with him uh, after the fall apart of the previous prime minister who almost government. Subsequent election after subsequent election, there's been now seven elections since Prime Minister Netanyahu came into power in 2009. And each time, Netanyahu has been shedding allies. First, it was his coalition with the left. Then it was his coalition with the center. Then it was people who used to work with him from allied parties. And then people from within his own party, the recruit party, branching off to create their own political formations. Because in Netanyahu's effort to consolidate and keep power, Year after year, he would alienate more, alienate more and more people. That effort to control the block in which he's presided over, sort of with musical chairs. You know, in musical chairs, you, you take a chair out each time, the music stops, and eventually you're only left with one chair. Uh, Baby is left on his last chair because all his political opponents have now taken out enough where he's not going to have a place to sit if this coalition moves forward. So people who he traditionally relied on now formed his opposition. It's basically, if you were to look at uh, a leading member of the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, and you think that the Republican Party has X amount of interest groups that constitute it, whether it's evangelicals, conservatives, business owners, farmers, small business owners, uh, whatever else, 
it's as if though all of those different oppositions or, or what or those once allies have now peeled off and they've allied with the Democrats because they're sick of the leaders. Okay, the same thing happened in Israel. Everyone who was friends with the Likud party and their allies, 61 of them, and there's 120 seats in the Knesset, Israel's parliament, 61 of them have now said, you know what, Prime Minister Netanyahu, your time's up. But because it's such a laser-thin majority of one seat, all Netanyahu needs is a deadlock in the Knesset. He only has to peel away one member of Knesset to his side. And if he's able to do that, it'll go to a thick election in two years. So we don't know what's going to happen, but this is the first time there was a crack in the dam. We'll see if it opens up. If not, we might be prime minister again. Yeah, so this is such an important time. So people who are listening, be praying about what is happening in the land of Israel among the Jewish people today. There's so much we can do to help. But before we wrap up today, Greg, tell us a little bit about how we can get more involved with the work there at Middle East Forum. Sure. So just as a postscript to my last point, even if Netanyahu is not prime minister, Israel will be okay. So that's just a point to, to keep in mind for your listeners. If you want to listen to anything that we have in terms of our presentation, uh, MEF is very active in the world of podcasts and in the world of radio. You can find all of our broadcasts and 250 in our archives in the last two years on iTunes or on Apple, uh, excuse me, on Google Android's uh, podcast store. You can also find us at meforum.org, where we publish over 500 articles a year. And we have our journal there for more longer form pieces. And of course, we're active on Twitter at meforum. Again, that's meforum.org. Thank you so much, Greg, for being with us today. Thank you. And again, for those listening, thank you for joining us here on A View from the Wall. We encourage you to listen again at IamAWatchman.com, where you can sign up for the latest e-newsletter, download one of our free e-books, and enjoy other resources to help you in your spiritual walk. We also appreciate your prayers and support to help us serve you and others. Join us here next time on A View from the Wall. A View from the Wall, in association with I Am a Watchman Ministries, exists to equip a worldwide audience with biblical truth, sharing it with others, and being prepared for Christ's imminent return. The team seeks to encourage, inspire, and equip watchmen for such a time as this. For information about the ministry and upcoming events, visit IamAWatchman.com. A View from the Wall is made possible by the team of dedicated pastors, editors, and the many contributors of I Am A Watchman Ministries. To support our efforts, give online at IamAWatchman.com and click on the Donate button. Thanks for listening, and join us again next time on A View from the Wall.